turn with me to Isaiah chapter 11. We finished up a study in the book of uh, Romans, and that was uh, exciting for me. I hope it was rewarding for everyone. But I thought over the next few weeks, we might look at the liturgy that we observe in our congregation and uh, reflect on why we do that, but also what these passages are about, where they come from. So in Isaiah chapter 11, the first thing that we do in our liturgical element is to light the candles. And when we light the candles, we recite what is written in Isaiah chapter 11, the first one or two, the first two verses, where it says, a shoot will come up from the stump of Jesse, from his roots a branch will bear fruit, and the spirit of the Lord will rest on him. The spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and of power, the spirit of knowledge and of the fear of the Lord. And he will delight in the fear of the Lord. He will not judge by what he sees with his eyes or decide by what he hears with his ears. But with righteousness, he will judge the needy. With justice, he will give decisions for the poor of the earth. He will strike the earth with the rod of his mouth and the breath of his lips. He will slay the wicked. Righteousness will be his belt, faithfulness the sash around his waist. The wolf will live with the lamb. The leopard will lie down with the goat. The calf and the lion and the yearling together and a little child will lead them. The cow will feed with the bear. Their young will lie down together. And the lion will eat straw like the ox. The infant will play near the hole of the cobra, and the young child will put his hand into the viper's nest. They will neither harm nor destroy on all my holy mountain, for the earth will be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. In that day, the root of Jesse will stand as a banner for the peoples. The nations will rally to him, and his place of rest will be glorious. In that day, the Lord will reach out his hand a second time to reclaim the remnant that is left of his people from Assyria, from Lower Egypt, from Upper Egypt, from Cush, from Elam, from Babylon, Babylonia, from Hamat, and from the islands of the sea. He will raise a banner for the nations and gather the exiles of Israel. He will assembly, assemble the scattered people of Judah and the four, from the four quarters of the earth. Ephraim's jealousy will vanish. Judah's enemies will be cut off. Ephraim will not be jealous of Judah, nor Judah hostile toward Ephraim. They will swoop down on the slopes of Philistia to the west. Together they will plunder the people to the east. They will lay hands on Edom and Moab, and the Ammonites will be subject to them. The Lord will dry up the gulf of the Egyptian sea, and a scorching wind he will sweep his hand over the Euphrates River. He will break it up into seven streams so that men can cross over it in sandals. There will be a highway for the remnant of his people that is left from Assyria, as there was for Israel when they came out from Egypt. Wow, to be the author of that chapter, is that not a glorious passage? I mean, you can just stay there for Oh, who knows how long, but just wonderful ideas and wonderful themes and promises to reflect on. This section of Isaiah is one of the most potent 
and one of the most beautiful in all of God's Word. It begins in chapter 7, and it concludes in chapter 12. It is what scholars refer to as the book of Emmanuel in the prophet Isaiah. Because Emmanuel is the central figure that is spoken of in these passages. For example, if you turn back to Isaiah chapter 7, and you look at verse 14, we're told of Messiah or Emmanuel's origins. That he would be born of a virgin. And that his name would be called Emmanuel. And really, technically, in chapter 7, verse 14, it is not merely that a virgin, but the virgin will be with child and will give birth to a son and will call his name God with us. When you get to chapter 8, Isaiah speaks about the restoration of his people, the regathering of the Jewish people into Israel. And it's very interesting that he makes reference to the land of Israel as the land of Emmanuel. And he says that this is Emmanuel's land and we now inherit it because God is with us. He has this play on words on the name of Emmanuel, but in the Hebrew, the word Emmanuel comes up multiple times in this section. So in Isaiah 7, 14, Emmanuel is this child who is born, a son who is given. In chapter 8, the land is the land of Emmanuel's. We are restored to it as his people, and thus we abide upon, we dwell in the land of Emmanuel because of Emmanuel, because God is with us. When you get to chapter 9, of course, that is that great passage in chapter 9, verse 6. For as in the day of Midian, he goes on to say, For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing it, upholding it with justice and justice. The zeal, the might, the strength of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. So Emmanuel is key in chapter 7, chapter 8, chapter 9. In our passage, in chapter 11, it is the root of Jesse. This is Emmanuel, the one who is born of the virgin, the one who is a son who is given. And then when we get to chapter 12, Isaiah concludes the section with a word of praise. As he reflects on all this, he says, And I will praise you, O Lord. Although you are angry with me, your anger is turned away. Why? Because of Emmanuel. God is with us. And what is the result of God being with us, Emmanuel with us? Surely God is my salvation. And therefore I will trust and not be afraid. It is the Lord who is my strength and my song. And more than that, he's become my salvation. Therefore with joy we will draw waters from the wells of salvation. Therefore give thanks. Sing to the Lord for he has done glorious things. Shout aloud and sing for joy, people of Zion. For great is the Holy One of Israel among you. This is all about Emmanuel. And when we reflect on who Emmanuel is, we cannot help but shout for joy, sing for gladness, and give praise for who Emmanuel is and what he has done. When I look at chapter 11, somewhat in isolation, I can't help but think of the opening lines of Messiah's prayer, the Lord's prayer, where he says, this is how we should pray. Hallowed be our Father in heaven, hallowed be thy name, thy kingdom come, thy will be done. 
That opening line of that prayer that Messiah teaches us to pray is first of all to be a prayer about the person of God, his character. Hallowed be your name. We give praise to God for who he is. When you look at Isaiah chapter 11, these first two verses or so, it's about the character of Emmanuel. We are giving praise for who he is with regard to his person. We could say this is about the messianic person. This is about the Messiah and who he is to be and what he is to be like. When we are instructed by Messiah to pray, thy kingdom come, now we're to pray about his program. What is God's program to establish his kingdom? And when we look at verses uh, 4, 5, 6, and 7, all the way through 9, we learn something of his program. Something of what the kingdom is going to look like. And then when we get to the final verses, verses 10 through the end of chapter 11, it's almost like the third phrase of Messiah's prayer. Thy will be done. What is the purpose in all of this? That the will of God would be accomplished. And when you look at the latter verses of chapter 11, we're struck by the purpose for Messiah's coming. So we're told something about who the Messiah is, what he will be like. We're told something about his program, the establishing of his kingdom, what it will look like. And we're told why he establishes that program, what his purpose in it all is. That peace and prosperity and harmony and salvation and love and light would be established. When we light the candles then, we're reflecting on these first two verses that speak of Messiah's character. And we're reminded that Messiah said, he is the light of the world. So when we start our service, we light these candles because we want to make a statement. And I understand not everyone that comes in understands the statement in the image that is before them. But this is the image of Messiah. This is a reflection, as it were, of Messiah's presence in our midst, who is our light, who is our savior, who is our joy. And when we sing, we sing out to him for what he has done for us. When you look at these first few verses, of course, I keep saying it's of the Messiah. But there's nothing here in the text that says, this is of the Messiah, so that we don't get it wrong. But it is interesting. I have a copy of the Targum of Isaiah. Now, the Targums are an interesting collection of Jewish literature. They are what we would refer to as paraphrases. That is to say, they are not literal translations of the Hebrew text, but they are paraphrases of it. In other words, if we were, and I'm just saying this, I don't know if this is true or not, if, for example, we were to translate a passage in the New Testament, say, where the text says, and the Lord went up to Jerusalem, that might be a literal translation. I might paraphrase it as saying, and the Lord traveled to Jerusalem. Literally, it says he went up to. But now I want to bring it into my world. None of us really say, so what are you doing today? Oh, I'm going up to Hollywood. You know, we just don't say that. Or I'm going to go up to the museum to enjoy, you know, whatever is on display. We say, I'm going to go to, or I'm going to travel somewhere. So we might in the 21st century say, when translating that or paraphrasing it, I should say, we might say the Lord went to Jerusalem or he traveled to Jerusalem. So a paraphrase does something for us that a translation does not. It gives you a window into how I understand the passage and what I believe the passage is conveying. 
I may be wrong about that, but it gives you an idea as to what I understand the passage to mean, not necessarily what it says. So you have to evaluate whether how I paraphrase things is good or bad, right or wrong. Now, a targum is a paraphrase of the Hebrew text. The targums were translated, or I should say written down, in Aramaic and not in Hebrew. The reason for that is because, as you know, around 600 years before the time of Messiah, the Jewish people were taken into captivity to Babylon for 70 years. Aramaic was the common language of the Babylonians. So when our people were taken captive into Babylon for 70 years, we learned Aramaic. Some 70 years later, under Cyrus, the Persian, he permitted us, Jewish people that is, to return to the land of Israel. When our people returned to the land of Israel, many of them did not speak Hebrew any longer. They spoke Aramaic. So when the scripture was read in the synagogue, many of the Jewish people in the synagogues came to worship, could not understand what they were reading and what they were hearing. So alongside the biblical text read in Hebrew, a translator or an Aramaic speaker would read a targum, which paraphrased the passage that was read that Shabbat morning. Does that all make sense? So now what happened is around 30 years before the time of Jesus, before the time of Yeshua, before the time of Messiah, there was a great Hebrew sage. His name was Jonathan ben Uziel, or ben Uziel, however some people pronounce it. This man was so recognized and acknowledged that he is spoken of as Hillel's chief disciple, his greatest disciple. Hillel Shammai are like the two greatest rabbis of the first century. And this was Hillel's leading pupil, Jonathan Ben-Uziel. Of Jonathan Ben-Uziel in the Talmud, it says some interesting things about him. This man was considered to have been of such a stature and of such a holiness that it said that when he would sit down at his desk to study the word, birds that would fly over his head would burn up because the glory was so emanating. Now, I don't know if that's true. But it tells us something about how others venerated him and what they thought of him. And they even went so far as to say that his targum, though we do not, do not underscore, do not believe this, many of the Jewish leaders taught that he was inspired by the Holy Spirit when he wrote his targums. When you look at his translation, I remember this, he lived around 30 years before the time of Messiah. So Messiah hasn't come on the scene of history yet. He's not a disciple of Yeshua, although maybe he would have been. But he is one who precedes Yeshua, precedes Jesus. And it's interesting to hear and to read 
how he translated some of these key passages and some of the notations he made as to what he understood by them. So this is his paraphrase of Isaiah chapter 11. When we read it in the translation, we read, a shoot will come up from the stump of Jesse, from his ranch, uh, from his roots, a branch. There's my my dyslexia. I don't know if I have dyslexia like this. Just in case anyone feels sorry for me, you know. Don't feel sorry for me. Uh, From his roots, a branch will bear fruit. The spirit of the Lord will rest on him, spirit of wisdom, understanding, counsel, might, knowledge, fear of the Lord, and he will delight in the fear of the Lord. Here's how Jonathan ben Uzziel translates this. And a king shall come forth from the sons of Jesse, and from his children's children the Messiah shall be anointed. And there shall dwell upon him the spirit of prophecy from before the Lord the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. When you get down to Isaiah chapter 11, verse 6, in verse 6, we read the translation, the wolf will lie down with the lamb, the leopard will lie down with the goat. And sometimes the the verses don't uh, line up exactly. But he begins to tell us about the kingdom. And this is how he translates it. In the days of the Messiah of Israel, peace shall be multiplied. And the cow and the bear will graze, the young ones will lie down together, the lion will eat straw like the ox. My point in making reference to him is to say that one of the earliest passages of these Jewish writers, when they looked at Isaiah 11, or at least Jonathan ben Uzziel and all of the accolations that he received, he understood that Isaiah 11 was about the Messiah of Israel when he would come and establish his kingdom. Now, in the few moments that I have, let's just take a look at these first two verses. Notice, first of all, that Messiah comes at a time of great distress upon Israel and upon the family of David. That when the Messiah will come, he will come at a time of great distress, but he also will come with great humility. Look what it says. A shoot will come up from the stump of Jesse, not even from the loins of David. We have to look at David's father. So he doesn't even make reference to Messiah appearing when royalty is in place, when a king is sitting on the throne of David. No, the one who comes is not the son of David, but he's a stump from the shoot of Jesse, David's father. The reason Isaiah makes reference to that is not so that we would not think of him as a king, but that he's referencing the fact that he would come in humility. And it's such humility that he doesn't even mention David in the same breath with him. Although he is the son of David. And although he is a king who deserves to sit sit on David's throne. And the prophets tell us that the Messiah will. But when he initially comes, Isaiah is telling us, he's going to come in great humility. Now he doesn't tell us that he's coming in suffering. Not here. But it may be reflected in the quality of his humility. We don't know all that here, but we will learn about it later in Isaiah 53. We are told the extent of his humility. It is of such a degree or such a stature that he's one that will lay down his life 
for the sheep. For we all like sheep have gone astray and we've turned everyone to his own way. But the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. That is the kind of humility with which the Messiah comes. He's a stump of Jesse. The idea is that the tree that represents the Davidic dynasty has been lopped off. And we don't see the branches of the tree. We don't see the descendants of David. What we see is a stump. But in that stump is life because that stump is connected to the roots. You see what he says? Out of the roots, a twig will sprout forth. And Isaiah tells us, he will be fruitful. He will bear much fruit. This one will come at a time of great distress in Israel because the Davidic dynasty is lopped off and there's no king in Israel. He will come in a time of great humility upon Israel, and he himself will come with great humility. So that he is merely a shoot. He is merely a twig that appears. Isaiah will tell us he will not be recognized for who he truly is. For he will only seem like a shoot, a twig. Not even a great branch, let alone a great tree representing a kingdom. But what he will establish is indeed a great kingdom. I can't help but think of Messiah's words when he says in John chapter 15 that we are to abide in him. He is the vine. We are the branches. We are to abide in him. And what he tells us is if we abide in him, we will bear fruit. We will bear more fruit. We will bear much fruit. We will bear fruit that will last, Messiah says. So when Messiah comes, his coming will bring about fruitfulness. The big question is, if he is in your life, has fruitfulness manifested itself in you? For if there is fruitfulness in your life, it is the fruit of Messiah. It is the presence of Messiah working out his grace in your life. It is the presence of Messiah by virtue of his spirit, which he promised he would give to those who embrace him. And as we saw him given in Acts chapter 2 on the day of Pentecost. Messiah's coming would mean a fruitfulness. And that fruitfulness is not only seen in those who who would embrace him. But it is seen in the transformation of the lives of those who are attached to him and abide in him. So are we abiding? Are we attached? Are we growing in him? And are we manifesting the characteristics of Messiah himself? We already named one, humility. If we are in Messiah and if we're going to be like Messiah, we must therefore be lowly. We must therefore be humble individuals. Peter tells us, humble yourself before the mighty hand of God. In due time, he will raise you up. And so our job is to allow the character of Messiah to make himself known in and through us. One of the ways he will make himself known is in humility. Messiah himself tells us, I think it's Mark chapter 10 or 11, just teaching on this at Shalom Fellowship. That's why I'm remembering it. But in Mark chapter 10, we're told that he came into the world not to be served, but to be a servant and to be a ransom for many. That passage is an incredible passage because it's the third time in the Gospel of Mark that Yeshua tells us he is coming to die. And in Mark's account, he doesn't just tell us he's coming to die. That would be horrible in and of itself. But he tells us how he would die. He tells us that he would be rejected of others. 
He tells us that he would be mistreated and that his death would be a violent one. Not merely a death, but a violent death at that. And after he says this, this is so unbelievable to me, but maybe it shouldn't be. But after he spells out that he's coming to die and his death would be violent, James and John ask him a question. And they say, when you're in your kingdom, can we sit on your right hand and on your left? It's like, what happened? He just told them, I'm going to die. I'm going to die violently. And they ask, can we sit on your right hand and on your left? Like, weren't you listening? It's like anyone else that comes to you and expresses their hurt. And then you say, oh, by the way, I wanted to tell you about my trip that's coming up. Or I want to tell you about, you know, my new stereo system, my prayer, whatever it is. It's like, weren't you listening? You know, the heart and soul of a person is being bared. And we're asking, can we be rewarded and lifted up and blessed? Can we sit at your right hand and on your left? And Yeshua's response is so telling. If it was you and I, we would say, what is wrong with you? We would say something like, don't you care about what I'm sharing? But what Yeshua says, it's not for me to provide that for you. Whoever it's assigned for, they will sit there. And I'm thinking, this is just uncanny. And then an argument breaks out. Messiah is just told about his coming death, and an argument breaks out. And they start arguing about who is greatest in the kingdom. And they say, who, why would James and John ask to sit at the right hand and left hand of the Messiah? Who are they? Hey, shouldn't I be the one over there? Another disciple was saying an argument is breaking out over who's going to be the best rewarded individual in the kingdom. And Messiah says, my disciples are not to be like that. That's the way the Gentiles deal with things. That's the way the nations deal with things. That's the way the world deals with leadership. That's the way the world deals with those who have positions of power. They lord it over others. And Peter will write that we are not to lord it over others. And then Messiah says those words, the Son of Man came into the world not to be served. Every king that comes into the world comes into the world to be served. I don't know any king that said, nobody has to serve me. They all say, where's my wine? Where's my food? Who's taking care of our boundaries? Who's counting the money? They are the ones who are served. But our king comes in humility. Our king comes to serve and not to be served. Our king comes to suffer and to die, not to be rewarded and blessed. Our king comes to be received and acknowledged, not to be honored or acknowledged in any way. He comes in order to give his life a ransom for many. For he is the shoot of Jesse. But what a marvelous shoot and servant and suffering one he is. For as Isaiah pictures him... He pictures the menorah. He tells us that upon him will rest the spirit of the Lord. That central shaft of the candelabra. And then coming out from the shaft in pairs. He tells us. That's what he pictures. He says the, the spirit of wisdom and understanding. The spirit of counsel and might. The spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. The imagery is... 
of the menorah in the temple. And as it was situated on the right-hand side of the holy place in the temple, as you looked out from it on the left-hand side, as you looked in to the temple or the holy place, the menorah was lit every day and it was to be kept lit. And it was to signify the dwelling presence of God in the midst of his people. When our menorah is lit, it reflects the dwelling presence of the Messiah in whom the Spirit rests without measure. That's what John says. Read it in John chapter 3. Where he says, the one upon whom you will see the Spirit of God descend and remain. And he says, and it will come upon him without limits. That is to say that even in Messiah's earthly ministry, the fullness of the Spirit of God empowered him to accomplish the ministry and work that he was given. You and I are not as fortunate. We have the Spirit of God resting upon us with measure. That's why none of us have all the gifts of the Spirit. Messiah had all the gifts of the Spirit. He had no need for anyone to teach him, for he had all knowledge. He had no one to counsel him. He had no need for it, because with all of his unlimited knowledge, he also knew what to do in whatever circumstances he found himself in. He needed no help from anyone else, for upon him rested all power and all might. Upon him rested the Spirit of God without measure. But for you and I, we are not as fortunate. The Spirit of God dwells within us, but some of us are gifted with administration. Obviously, that's not one of my gifts. Some of us are gifted with a gift of pastoring, teaching. Some of us are gifted with the gifts of encouragement. Some of us are gifted with the gifts of giving and gifts of helps. Gifts of leadership and gifts of oversight. Messiah had all the gifts and therefore had no need of others. And therefore came for us. But you and I have need for each other. For we are limited in what we have by virtue of the gifts of the Spirit. And because we are dead in trespasses in sin. Though made alive unto God by His Spirit. And that's why I talked about the need for humility, but there's the need for service. Our Lord has come into the world to to serve, not to be served. He has won us unto Himself that we might serve one another. And He's given us gifts so that we might use them to serve one another. It is imperative that we know what God has entrusted to us for no other reason than that he has given you a gift. And it ought to be acknowledged. You ought to be able to say to the Lord, thank you for, and you should be able to fill in the blank. Wouldn't it be a terrible thing on a wedding day? Someone's given a gift and there it is. And thank you for, who gave that gift? (laughs) That's not too good. We want to know what gift we have, and we know who the gift giver is. There's only one way you can give him thanks for what he has given to you, by knowing what he's given to you. He's given you something for every believer has 
The presence of the Spirit in every believer has at least one, and most have more than one gift. And it needs to be used for the building up of the body. And it needs to be used for the winning of the lost. And thus, when the Messiah would come, he would come in great humility, but he also came with service on his heart. We too need to be made into humble individuals, to be sure. But we also need to become servants of one another. If Beth Ariel is going to go beyond where we are now, we've come here in the 30 years or so, and it's wonderful that the early founders and those are here. I'm so glad to meet you, and, and I look forward to saying hello to you personally. But if we're going to go the next 30 years to be different than we, we are now, it's not going to be because we have four or five elders who are praying earnestly and serving with all of their might and all of their energy. It's going to be because we as one body are willing to use our gifts to serve one another and to reach out to the lost. Where would the hand be without the fingers? Where would the foot be without the toes? Where would the arms be without the shoulders? Where would the ears be without the eyes? We might get along somewhat, but we're going to limp along and not get to where the Lord would have us. And that's an incredible responsibility the Lord has leveled, levied upon us. He's called us into his family, not so that he can transform, transfer us from earth to heaven, but so that he can utilize us here with the days that we have to transform the earth around us. And that's what Isaiah 11 says, doesn't it? When he comes, indeed, there will be peace and harmony. Indeed, there will be such transformation that lions are going to be hanging out with lambs. That bears will not be feasting on oxen. I don't know if they do that. They won't be attacking them anyway. But they'll be grazing in the field alongside them. Little children are going to play with man's arch animal enemy, the snake. And thus, whether it's at the entrance to their den or somewhere else, a little child will play with the cobra and the viper, and there will not be any harm in all of his kingdom. Not only will there be harmony, which is what the Lord wants to bring about in his body, even presently, but there will be salvation to the ends of the earth. You see how often in this passage Gentiles are made reference to? You think this was a Jewish book. And there they are, the nations, the peoples of the earth, the Assyrians, Lower Egypt, Cush, Elam, they're all there. The Lord's desire is not only for his people Israel, though indeed he has chosen them as a distinct people, but his desire is for all peoples everywhere and anywhere to come in unto him, not willing that any should perish. And when the kingdom dawns, they shall all know him from one end of the earth to the other. But until that day comes, you and I have the great privilege and opportunity to let the peoples of the world know of him. We do that through our missionaries and our missions committees working together to bring that to our immediate attention much more prominently than it has been. But it also is through us. For those who we support in other parts of the world or country, look to Los Angeles and we are, as it were, their missionaries working here. We are all missionaries in one 
form or the other. For yeah, in, after all, every Sunday we read, Yeshua said, you will be my witnesses, my missionaries, my evangelists, my proclaimers, whatever word you want to use. Beginning in Jerusalem and Samaria and to, to uh, the uttermost parts. Samaria and Galilee and the uttermost parts of the earth. We are in the uttermost parts of the earth. And thus we have a job to do. If we truly embrace humility as Messiah, we will do that job. And we will not shrink from it. For that is what the king has commanded us to do. Ultimately, we refuse our king. And that's because we have not been humble as he would have us be. He is one who has entrusted gifts to us. Even as he is endowed with the fullness of the Spirit, he shares the Spirit of God with us. That in his strength, we might serve one another and serve him. We serve one another by using our gifts to build up each other, not tear down. To encourage, not to criticize. To rejoice together and not to complain. And we embrace that humility and service so that those who don't know him would know him, might know him. And it may be because of your voice to the heart and soul of another individual. A shoot will come up from the stump of Jesse. From his roots a branch will bear fruit. The spirit of the Lord will rest on him. The spirit of wisdom and understanding, counsel and might, and the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And here's my last point, and this is what I'm closing with. And he will delight in the fear of the Lord. So where does Messiah take delight? Where the fear of the Lord is found. Where reverence for God is found. You want to bring delight to Messiah's heart? Be a person who reverences God. You want to bring joy to Messiah's heart? We're told what brings delight to his. The fear of the Lord. Reverence for him. Acknowledge of his holiness. And actions that reflect that truth and reality. If we do that with one another and with the world outside of us, the Lord will take great pleasure in you and me, and great pleasure in Beth Ariel.